my advice has been, you know, sort of find like some categories where there is some sleepy sort of players that are much smaller in revenue base and like evaluate their product line and see is there any tangible asset because those are typically ones that you're able to get funding through, whether it's like a commercial loan or traditional funding and you don't have to give up a ton of equity. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Eugene Kang, CEO and co-founder of Country Archer, one of the fastest growing food brands in the country, and an amazing story of acquisition entrepreneurship. Eugene, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave, for having me. So I want to start off about the fact that entrepreneurship runs in your blood. It's something you grew up with, experienced early on. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, my parents are immigrants from South Korea. Uh, they migrated here in the 80s. And the first business that they kind of got into is retail. You know, it's the easiest business to get into when you're in the re- when you're an immigrant. Um, that, you know, with English being not your primary language. So my father first opened up a gas station when he was like 18 years old. And so obviously when I was born into this world, uh, kind of grew up in this sort of small business format. So as early as I can remember, just working at the gas stations and convenience stores and sort of learning the ropes of the business at an early age, the kind of entrepreneurship kind of ran through the blood. And, and over time, it just kind of migrated wherever there was an opportunity for disruption or, or you know, <laughs> revenue, like my parents moved and kind of moved along with them. So we never really stayed mobile. We were, we're always mobile. We never stayed stationary in one area. So I remember like when I was in yeah, like second grade, we moved in Palm Springs. It's because my father found an opportunity of like a lawnmower dealership and uh, play a lot of golf out in Palm Springs. And he said, let's go there. So entrepreneurship kind of just early on, just learning from my folks and seeing, seeing the small business run through them. So. That's awesome. So what lessons on entrepreneurship and really building not only a business, but a brand? Did you learn from the time working, uh, you know, in all those entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, uh, obviously the big relevancy here is with the convenience store formats. You know, when I, you know, early on, as I can remember, working in the stores, doing a lot of s- supplies and stocking and you know ordering, etc. You know, you got to see sort of so many brands sort of evolve throughout, you know, throughout the store. Whether it was uh, Gatorade buying uh, Propel, and you start seeing the bottles start turning out to look like Gatorade bottles, or whether it's Coke buying vitamin water and. I remember when I saw first saw pop chips coming into the store. So just seeing evolution of brands and categories evolve within the C store format sort of was my early sort of experience and extent sort of exposure there. So oh, perfect. So I want to move in and talk about Country Archer uh, yeah. because you know we were talking a little bit before we started. It's a fascinating journey that's a little bit different than I think some of these new upstart brands that you see elsewhere. So Country Archer is an old brand that you've really written this new chapter for. Can you tell us a little bit about this origin story of discovering the brand and how you end up on this crazy journey? Yeah, I know. It's uh, definitely interesting. And so how we came across the brand was a little serendipitous. You know, we came across it in 2010 on a road trip up to the Grand Canyon. My partner and I stopped at this small little sort of shack and it was like a little roadside stand and had this like billboard on, on the freeway and it said fresh jerky. So we obviously stepped by and you know, for me, jerky is nostalgic with road trips and going to like, you know, uh, national parks. So we stopped by, uh, it was like a husband and wife just selling bags of jerky in like a plastic bag with like a sticker label slapped over it. And there's no preservatives, all natural. And I thought just way ahead of its time because I was so used to those 
chemically laced sort of gas station snacks that you know everyone kind of grew up on. So obviously the first thing I asked is you know where where, where are you guys making this? Are you guys making the back? Um, they they were very transparent, which was really nice. They were like, no, we we buy from this small little plant out in Southern California. It's in Grand Terrace, and here's the car, etc. So. I immediately tracked the owner down and, uh, you know, turns out he was an 80 year old gentleman, butcher by trade, Italian heritage. So he, you know, kind of grew up in the, the, the art making of, uh, you know, meat snacks and he was, you know, meats and sausages, et cetera. So turns out he had this little 2000 square feet facility in Grand Terrace and he was primarily a co-packer. He was making it for all these little small roadside mom and pop stores throughout Southern California. And, uh, he had no succession plan. And, you know, we kind of said, listen, I think this product is way out of its time. I think this deserves to have like a more national presence. And, you know, let's talk about maybe buying you out. And uh, he, he was obviously very interested because he wanted to retire. So it's kind of how it started out. And was it called Country Archer at the time or? The company was called Country Archer, okay. but 99% of their revenue was all from co-packing. So you wouldn't know what the brand was or if, you know where it was found in the marketplace. So Now, you were a lover of jerky, but I don't think you'd ever been butchering yourself. So, no. Uh, how'd you go about like not only buying a company, but then go figure out how to take over this artisanal uh, yeah. trade, if you will? Well, first things first, I need funding. So uh, obviously with Charlie saying he was interested in selling us the business, you know, we, we quickly got into escrow and we worked out a sort of buyout price and we, we bought the business for half a million dollars, wow. property included. It was probably sub six figures, I would say $500,000 a year in sales. So it was about 50,000 a month and it was all co-packing. Obviously with, with property and tangible assets, it's a much easier to get a commercial loan from a bank and then starting something from the ground up. Went to my parents and said, you know, I was kind of in my early 20s and kind of in college and wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that school wasn't it for me. And I approached them and said, listen, I can get a commercial loan on this business, but I need some down payment. Do you mind if I you know, get a loan here? And so they looked at me like I was half crazy, but they also knew that they were kind of, you know, they knew that it was half serious. And, you know, being that my father too came in, you know, is an immigrant to the country and he understood that entrepreneur pathway and was like, okay, I'll support you with this and gave me 50 grand and uh, my partner put in 50 and we went out and got a commercial loan and that was it. And um, from there, you know, we, it, it just kind of, you know, took off. So, yeah. And so you really purchased two brand or two businesses in one. You got the brand of Country Archer. You got the co-packing business, the manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you decide to take on both versus just say, hey, there's, you know, let's keep being a co-packer. Let's just keep doing this. Yeah. I, I think it's more like we, we really bought, we, we really bought the business itself, the co-packing business. And with the intent that we really wanted to push the brand over yeah. at, at some point. So like. The way I look at it is like over time, within the next, I would say subsequently like two years after we bought the business, it started morphing into like effectively two businesses. We were no longer just a manufacturing business, but now we had this huge sort of effort and push to like push a brand. Yeah. And so that I thought was kind of an interesting sort of development for us at Country Archer. It was like at some point we were just not interested in co-packing for these small mom and pops, but really just, you know, pushing more of the branded side. So talk about that journey, because there had to be this tension point at one point of, we have these co-packing, that's all of the revenue that we've got coming in. Yeah. Those probably don't want us competing with our own brand out there. So how'd you make that decision? Did you cut them off immediately, and or did you kind of phase it out? 
Yeah, we, we phased it out. I mean, we knew that effectively, you know, that's what was paying the bills. And so, you know, when we first launched Country Archer, we didn't have any sales, right? It was literally me going in the back of my trunk and just going around to like local stores and selling it in. So it was really tough to sort of feed off that revenue entirely. So it was a little bit of a phase out process. And, you know, we were hoping that, you know, well, if we're hedging here, if the brand doesn't ever take off, then maybe then our sort of business model is just purely co-packing. And so that was kind of the thought process. And, you know, co-packing really paid the bills. I mean, it was primarily, it was the only revenue at the time. So around 2015 is when we started seeing a huge inflection point where the brand had started, the brand Country Archer really started taking a big chunk of our revenue. And it started actually interfering with our operational side of the business. When you start producing a lot more Country Archer and having to lace in more of these smaller co-pack businesses, at that point, it just didn't make any sense. And around 2015 is when we approached most of those smaller mom and pops and said, listen, this is just kind of where the business is going and happy to you know lend you some sort of help in terms of finding nearby co-packers that could effectively take over your business. Because I didn't want them to sort of lose yeah. any business there on that retail front as well. So we were happy to report that most of those brands were placed at some pretty good co-packing homes. And from there, we just never looked back and just went all the, all the way to Country Archer. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates partner with Hunt Club. Did any of those uh, original co-packers just take on the brand Country Archer and become a retailer for you instead? No, they all just kind of stuck with their own uh, brands, you know, and, and I think it, you know, a lot of these businesses were so niche and, you know, whether it was on the way to Grand Canyon or Yosemite, like it was like specifically, and they had built like enough equity as their little small stores um, over the last 30 years that they weren't going to start selling CA, and we had higher ambitions. I mean, we wanted to we wanted to have Country Archer in virtually every grocery store in America, and that wasn't going to work for these little small road road stands. Makes sense. So early on in the journey, you actually connected Country Archer with the trend of CrossFit, and I think it was because you had a personal passion and knowledge of it. What made you kind of look at that audience and say, "Going niche is going to be this opportunity." especially when you just said your aspiration was to be in every grocery store. Yeah. I like to say it was sort of um, planned out and strategically sort of uh, masterminded, but definitely wasn't the case. I just was a consumer advocate, consumer myself of CrossFit. And obviously that, that sort of dietary tribe started adopting the paleo and whole 30. And so it just, you know, high protein, low sugar, clean ingredients and sort of, cross-functional fitness just all kind of tie together and so we just thought let's play in this space early on and it obviously paid a lot of dividends so so every entrepreneurial journey is super unique and yours i think is frankly more unique than a lot of the stories you hear of the traditional go get venture capital go launch a business etc so when you think about that what advice do you give to entrepreneurs that are aspiring to create the next consumer brand and follow these trends as you talk to them about your own journey 
Yeah, you know, for me, when I when I do talk to aspiring sort of food and beverage entrepreneurs, it's tough because you know a lot of them are starting something from the absolute ground up with no infrastructure. You know, for us, we bought a business that had tangible assets, and so I think for me, I'm starting to figure out there's a lot of these sort of smaller, like family-owned businesses throughout the country that a lot of people don't know about that have just been really under the radar for the last 40, 50 years because just sort of the old generation still running them with sort of the old business practices. And turns out some of their younger generation or their kids just don't want to take over the business. They have no succession plan, just like Charlie did at Country Archer. And so my advice has been, you know, sort of find like some categories where there is some sleepy sort of players that are much smaller in revenue base and like evaluate their product line and see is there any tangible asset. Because those are typically ones that you're able to get funding through, whether it's like a commercial loan or traditional funding, and you don't have to give up a ton of equity right off the bat. So I would say that's probably my biggest advice is like there's, you know, there's some cool little like small candy companies in the nearby area and they're all family owned and they just don't have a lot of like national retail presence. And that, that's been sort of my road and specialty. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really interesting, there's a conference I went to uh, about two months ago that Booth and Kellogg run up in Chicago. That's the entrepreneurship through acquisition conference. And it talked about this trend of there's something like 900,000 baby boomer businesses that don't have a succession plan. Those aren't venture backable, but they can definitely be the type of thing you've done with Country Archer. I mean, look, my I learned this through, you know, whether it's just, you know, obviously I was just lucky to be born to my parents. But, you know, that's sort of what sort of that's what paid the bills for my whole life growing up. Right? My parents went around from city to city finding these little small businesses that, you know, old multi-generational American families just didn't want to own anymore. And my parents were able to buy them up for, you know, not necessarily cheap, but at a good, reasonable price and get a loan on it. And recycle the cash to leverage it to buy more businesses. And so there are tons of business. Now, those aren't always brand aspirational consumer consumer facing products, but there are a lot of these sort of small businesses throughout the country that just don't have any homes and no succession plans. So absolutely. Yeah. So when you think about the retail journey that you went on, you had this great product proven out with, re, you know, quote unquote, retailers across the country, but your product had never been sold in a Kroger, a Costco, a Starbucks. <laughs> Yet all of those became your customers eventually. So yeah. how did you get your foot in the door with those? Did you use that heritage as the story? Yeah, I mean, we obviously, you know, naively thought that that would be the great story. So when we officially launched the brand in 2013, went out to some of these retailers, had our first category meetings. It's a rude awakening. It sobers you up, right? Because you have this huge aspiration. You, I mean, I fell in love with the brand through the product that I tried at the original roadside stand. So I thought, this is going to be easy, right? There's nothing like this in the marketplace. I'll go to my first category meeting and this will be just a slam dunk. And that's not the case. And you don't have any selling data. You don't have any velocity numbers. You're just non-existent. And turns out there's a couple other jerky brands that are coming out of the woodwork because Crave got acquired by Hershey's at the time. And so... You've got all these myriad of factors playing into it. So one of the things that we were sort of blessed with was we looked at the landscape and said, okay, well, where are we, how are we going to differentiate ourselves in the category? And we officially launched a sriracha flavored product in 2014. Which is delicious. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, back in 2014, if you think about it, if you zoom out, sriracha was like just the crazy hot flavor of that year. Hoi Fong, the original rooster bottle sauce of... Um, Sriracha was having that Sriracha apocalypse where they're shutting down the factory in California. And Rick Perry, the governor of Texas at the time, was like recruiting them to come to Texas. And there was like, they're just hitting the news cycles like crazy. 
And I thought, well, this is interesting. And a lot of retailers are fighting over like who's getting the last pallet of sriracha sauce. So, you know, I, I just contacted Hoi Fong and I was like, hey, look, um, Asian American entrepreneur down the street from you guys, trying to be aspired to be a food and bev guy. And would you ever give me a licensing deal? And they said, well, let's try it out. I mean, you know, R&D a product if we like the taste and we'll definitely give you the approval. And, you know, went to the grocery store, bought a couple of hot sauces, made some sample batches. They loved it. And they gave me the license. So with that, we put the you know rooster bottle right on the bag and front of back and went into these like ba- went back to these same retailers and said, okay, we got a Sriracha product, official license Hoi Fong. It's nothing like in, in, the, in the category. What do you think? And they were like, absolutely, we'll take it. But we were obviously smart about saying, listen, uh, you can't just take Sriracha. We also need you to bring in our original teriyaki. And they were like, sure, no problem. And so that's just sort of what seeded the brand block and from there just kind of snowballed so and now was that traditional retail that you got first or because i know starbucks was an early adopter nationwide like how'd that fall out yes yeah, sprouts was our first adopter so natural channel was our first adopter and then it kind of grew into like starbucks and then from there traditional grocery and then club so very cool yeah yeah and how being in crossfit early on you know this non-traditional retail is emerging as an opportunity that yeah. you know, 10 years ago, you didn't sell a jerky brand at Starbucks right. and a cup of coffee. So how do you think about the role that non-traditional retail can play in new discovery and everything else for a brand? I think it's huge. And I especially think in the category of snacking, particularly, I mean, it's it's definitely not, it's agnostic to whatever retail or whatever channel it's sold in. And I think that's the big factor here. When Starbucks first approached us about carrying jerky, we, you know, I was a little hesitant because I thought, great brand exposure but you know how many people are going to pick up a cup, cup of coffee and, and a bag of jerky I, I just wasn't sure and it's one of their best selling items in terms of branded snacks and i think it's attributed to the fact that it's it's snacking and, and and protein too doesn't hurt right so i think we're just living a world now where we're on the go we're always constantly you know sort of not eating as much meals we're just snacking in between and then protein being the big nutrient nutrient factor here so i think it was all like a myriad of combinations that kind of helped so and so digging in on that a little bit more, retail is changing a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the balance of food, drug, mass, non-traditional retail, Amazon and e-commerce, and even direct-to-consumer for your own business? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of these channels are just blurring. I mean, the, the channels, what used to separate them is now being blurred. Um, you know, we just walked a couple of stores now, Meyer, Fresh Time, and a lot of the same products are just being displayed in all retails. And so... I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating to see sort of these different channels and how brands sort of expose themselves or how they launch. I mean, I'm starting to see a lot of food and bed brands that are launching digitally first or through Amazon before they even enter physical retail, which is a huge drastic departure from where we were at. I mean, when we launched a brand in 2013, at that time, like digital was a very, very like small channel that not people, not a lot of people mastered at the time. So it's going to be super interesting to see how supply chain works out in terms of distribution and how does like sort of refrigerated products get into the consumer's hands via through online. But I think online is the sort of the biggest piece in terms of exposure and building like sort of a brand loyal tribe. And I think that's the, that's going to be the key factor here moving forward. But at the same token, you know, you have retailers like Whole Foods that I believe are the best discovery retailers where I consumers spend a lot more time shopping the shelves and really understanding what brands that they're buying. And so you're starting to get a lot of brand discoveries at those kind of retailers as well. Yeah. So 2013, you were the challenger brand. Six years later, seven years later, you guys are one of the most dominant forces in the jerky category and snacking overall. How do you think about 
you know, not having that next challenger brand eat at your heels and, you know, cause to you what you've done to some of the big players. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's been interesting about this category. And it's, I can't say it's just exclusive to our category. I'd see that in cross, cross all categories, right? Whether it's kombucha or ready to drink teas or even sparkling water right now. I mean, challenger brands are going to constantly come up in any category. And I think for us, it's, you know, staying true to our heritage and staying true to like sort of our principles and how we found the company. You know, we found the company back when it was a heritage brand that was producing all natural ingredients, uh, preservative free, which back then was a way ahead of its time. And so taking those principles and just continually to adopt that in the innovation cycle is only thing that's going to make us sort of heat off any challenger uh, brands, right? At the end of the day. So like when we first started the brand, it was not a grass fed. It was it was clean, it was preservative free, it was all natural. At that time, that was super innovative. But a lot of these bigger strategics actually started adopting the no preservatives and no MSG. And so we started looking like a me too. And so to some category managers and even retailers, that's like, well, yeah, I mean, but the next big 800 pound gorilla is preservative free now too. So we've had to constantly up our game from innovation, but we use the true principles from the beginning to be our sort of north, our guiding star essentially. Perfect. Well, I think that's an amazing place to end on. Thank you for sharing the story. I think this is an amazing aspirational for both big brands and entrepreneurs alike. So congratulations on everything and what the next years will have. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.